Good evening, everybody. Uh, welcome to a new episode of the Glenn Greenwald podcast. I have been traveling the last six or seven days or so and largely been offline, uh, something for which my family is surprised uh, and 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 happy. Uh, but I managed to do that. And so uh, there have been several important news events that have taken place over the last 48 hours and having just gotten back home. I have uh, a lot of events stacked up, haven't had much time to write about them. And so I wanted to spend some time here on Colin to discuss them and, and uh, provide some analysis and obviously uh, some Q&A with uh, the audience that's here and uh, have a kind of exchange about some of these issues. As I indicated in the headline and in the description for the room, I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about what was the pretty significant blow to the ongoing criminal probe of special counsel John Dunham, who Durham, who is uh, investigating whether there were crimes committed in connection with the 2016 election. Robert Mueller investigated one side of that, which was whether there was criminal collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia, and obviously found, as he put it, uh, no evidence to establish that that crime took place. So he ended up extracting other guilty pleas um, from process crimes like lying to the FBI and uh, other process crimes relating to the investigation itself on the core claim that the Trump campaign criminally conspired with Russia to interfere in the election. He found what he called no evidence to establish that crime. Uh, Investigating whether there were crimes on the other side, uh, namely uh, whether there were crimes committed by uh, the Clinton campaign, by uh, her lawyers, by um, various operatives inside the government in order to concoct the Russiagate scandal. And he has already obtained a significant guilty plea from uh, an ex-FBI lawyer, uh, Kevin Kleinsmith, who admitted uh, in uh, 2021, pled guilty to a pretty significant charge of falsifying an email that he used to submit to the FISA court in order to obtain permission to spy on Trump associate Carter Page during uh, the 2016 campaign after Carter Page had already left the campaign yet was still in touch with it. And he was attempting to obtain his second significant either guilty plea or guilty verdict when he indicted Hillary Clinton's uh, lawyer uh, on charges that he lied to the FBI um, when he, right before the election, uh, went and told the FBI um, that there was a secret server found between the Trump campaign on the one hand and a Russian bank called Alpha Bank on the other. And the uh, lawyer, Michael Sussman, was acquitted uh, on Monday for on that count of lying to the FBI. And I want to spend a little bit of time discussing what that means and what it does not mean in terms of the evidence that emerged about the fraud that was perpetrated on the public through the Clinton-friendly media as part of 2016. I also want to spend some time analyzing and discussing the implications of the verdict in the defamation case between the actors Johnny Depp and his ex-wife Amber Heard. There was a verdict just a few hours ago in a Virginia courtroom, as most of you likely know, 
Johnny Depp sued his ex-wife for a 2018 op-ed that was published in the Washington Post and ghostwritten by the ACLU that depicted Amber Heard as a victim of domestic violence and physical abuse. And although it didn't name Johnny Depp, the implication was very clear given the context and her previous accusations that that's who she met, uh, that that's who she met. And he sued her for $50 million for defamation, although his real aim was to clear his name. His Those accusations had severely crippled his acting career. No studio would, could touch him as a result of the widespread depiction of him as a wife beater. She then counterclaimed and brought her own defamation suit against him, claiming that he defamed her by basically accusing her of lying and also as the result of a statement from Depp's lawyer calling the whole thing a hoax and accusing Amber Heard of having conspired with her friends to basically frame him as a domestic violence uh, perpetrator. And the jury verdict was just delivered uh, just a couple hours ago, was overwhelmingly in Johnny Depp's favor. It found on all three counts that he had raised that she had defamed him by depicting him as a, a, a perpetrator of domestic violence and specifically found that the Washington Post article go, go, uh, ghostwritten by the ACLU was defamatory. And to win a case like that against a public figure, it's a very high evidentiary burden. You have to prove not only that it's false, namely that the accusations she made against him of being a white beater were false, but that she acted with malice, basically meaning that she knew it was false and lied on purpose about him with the intent to harm him. And that's what the jury found. They awarded her uh, DAP a total of $15 million, $10 million in damages for the lies that they concluded Amber Heard told about him and $5 million in punitive damages. By Virginia law, those punitive damages are automatically reduced to $350,000. They're capped at $350,000. So it's a total verdict of $10,300,000 more or less. And at the same time, they found in her favor on one small count, uh, namely that uh, Johnny Depp's lawyer defamed her when saying that she and her friends conspired uh, to perpetrate a hoax. It wasn't Johnny Depp's statements, but because the statements were made by his lawyer on his behalf under the law, you can attribute them to him. And and that's what the lawsuit did. And the jury found that that was defamation. Um, But that nothing else was. Um, So he awarded her, uh, the jury awarded uh, Amber Heard um, $2 million. So it's an overwhelming victory for Johnny Depp. He got a a jury verdict of $10,300,000. She got $2 million. But on the core claim of whether she lied about him being uh, a wife-beating abuser, the jury found in his favor. Um, I'm obviously noticing, or not obviously, but I am noticing that the Number of people in the room uh, is unusually small. Usually by this point, we have several hundred, if not close to a thousand, and we only have 17. And I'm being told that there's technical difficulties with the app, that apparently the app is not loading for uh, several people who are trying to have it loaded. So I think what I'll do is uh, try and figure that out. We'll see if the attendance count goes up. And if it doesn't, Um, I think what I'll do is just describe the third issue and uh, we can put that up on the website and then I can come back and do the analysis and Q&A that I was planning on doing once the app uh, is working because I don't think there's 
makes a lot of sense to do it uh, just for a small group of people, even though we do save them on the site. So the third issue I wanted to discuss, uh, I'm going to go back and talk about the meaning of each of those, um, is what I view as a clear change in the media narrative about the war in Ukraine. And in particular, um, it, uh, it seems obvious that the media, after spending three months all but pretending that there were no Russian advances or victories of any kind in the war, uh, propagating the fairy tale that the feisty Ukrainians were kicking the Russians' ass. You can go and find supposed Western experts predicting or pronouncing that Russia was days away from completely collapsing in the war, of having no more uh, machinery or supply lines to uh, provide their troops with with, uh, machinery, that they were about to collapse, that Ukraine was on the verge of driving them out of Ukraine. Now the entire narrative has shifted. We're hearing exactly the opposite, which is the truth, namely that Russia has made extraordinary advances in the eastern part of Ukraine. They have almost full control of the Donbass region um, and other parts of eastern Ukraine, which I know we're not supposed to remember this, is what Vladimir Putin said on February 23rd, the day before Russia invaded, was their worrying, namely to bring independence and what he called liberation to those two Russian-speaking provinces in eastern Ukraine that are largely ethnic Russians, Russian-speaking, and who have more loyalty to Moscow than they do to Kiev, just like the residents of, of Crimea did, and just like the two breakaway provinces in, in Georgia did, um, as Becky and South Ossetia. And so what you see here is what seems to be the real goal of Russia, which is to declare independence for or make part of Russia, regions where the people want to be independent of the centralized government or where they actually want to be part of Russia. And you can go back to the Russian war um, or the U.S. war, the NATO war, rather, in the Balkans, when the U.S. and, and NATO declared Kosovo an independent republic, even though it had long been part of Serbia. And the rationale that the U.S. used was, well, the people in Kosovo want to be independent of Serbia. They have made their uh, preference for autonomy clear, and we're going to honor that by making them independent. At the time, Vladimir Putin warned uh, that would set a very destabilizing precedent. If people in a particular province or a region who view themselves as independent of the centralized state could be just handed their independence on the grounds that they want it. And he obviously knew that there were many regions in the former Soviet republics who maintain allegiance to Russia. And that exact rationale could be used to, quote unquote, liberate them or declare independence for them. And that's what happened with two provinces in Georgia, with Crimea, and now a on its way to happening in these eastern regions of, of Ukraine. And I want to talk about why suddenly there's a narrative shift and what that means. So I'm being told by multiple people, uh, both outside the chat and also in the chat box, that there was extreme difficulty loading the app, uh, that it wasn't working. Um, and even the people who are here had to try many times to get in. So that obviously explains the very low count of people who are here. So I think it's worthwhile to just close the room with my apologies. Um, that kind of sets the table for what I view these issues as. And I wanted to go back and talk, take them one by one and talk about what the broader implications are. But given the difficulties with the app, I don't think it makes sense to do that now. I'm going to put this up on the site um, and I will reschedule the room to have the actual discussion I was hoping to have um, along with the Q&A once the app is functioning again, which hopefully will be soon later tonight. 
um, or or tomorrow. So uh, I hope you at least like, felt like you were part of an exclusive club of just a couple dozen people who were able to get in. Um, it was a cozy room of a couple dozen people. So um, I don't know, maybe that added some nice ambiance to the discussion, but um, I'd rather do the show once everyone who wants to can participate and attend. So with that, I'm going to say goodnight, hopefully just temporarily. Um, check my Twitter feed. I'll also send out, uh, if you if you learned of this through uh, my Substack email list, through the email list, I will uh, let everybody know the new time as well. And we can proceed with the show then. Thank you to the small number of people who were able to get in and your persistence in trying. And I hope to see you very shortly. Thank you.